everybody. Welcome to the Stress-Free Lounge. I'm your host, Bill Whittle, and it is the uh, 10th of uh, November, 2022, uh, Thursday as usual. Uh, had better Thursdays. I'm sure uh, most of you do too, have too. This uh, election was a real wake-up call in a lot of, uh, in a lot of ways. Um, so, uh, yeah, people are complaining. Uh, no, no super chats yet. No, I haven't had a chance to, to get them in, in place. But nevertheless, uh, it's good to see everybody. I was um, in Nashville for... I don't know, 48 hours at the most, I guess. Um, and I uh, had a great time, as always, on the Daily Wire uh, uh, live election coverage. That was really fun. Um, and had also uh, a lot of great conversations with the, um, with uh, well, obviously with Jeremy and the gang, but also with um, some of the guys that are doing the content that I do. So um, we've got, uh, we will... Um, we will do uh, the America's Forgotten Heroes things live, and it looks like that is going to be uh, pretty cool. They're trying; they, they want to open it up, kind of get me out of the studio, go to some of these places. That'd be fantastic if we can pull that off. Um, and then uh, I also talked uh, briefly with the producer of the um, the one I'm working on now, the Soviet terror state ones. And thank you very much for that, Bart Stretcher. says I was a favorite guest on the DW uh, uh, broadcast. Yeah, you know, it's, it's just what I do, man. I just kind of hang around, have a little chat with Megan, see, just for giggles. Thank you, though. Um, so uh, the great news also is that um, uh, Daily Wire has got one of those um, video volumes of LED walls, uh, which are super high resolution. That's how they shot Mandalorian. So they... The wall lights the scene, and you can get all kinds of fantastic, unbelievable effects. So um, the good news with that is uh, we can make the Soviet terror masters really moody. And um, my hope is to get a hold of the uh, KGB archives. I, th I think it's the largest photo collection in the world. Uh, I, I, if memory serves, uh, the KGB has well, inherited from the you know NKVD and the OGPU and the Cheka and all the rest of it. Um, some, I think it's like 9 million mugshots. I think it's 9 million. Um, and uh, I know there's a book, I think, that publishes a lot of them. So what I would like to have done, the biggest problem with this series that I'm working on now, is, um, is trying to convey the magnitude and at the same time the humanity. It's like you can do one, you can do the other. You know, you can you can connect it to people, but then you don't get a sense of the scale, or you can just talk about the scale, and you don't get any sense of person uh, person about. Uh, you know, you can't connect it to people's faces. So what my hope would be, and I don't want to promise anything because I just bounced just threw this out there with a couple of the producers, but hopefully when we shoot the Soviet terror masters thing somewhere on the set, since they have an entire wall behind me, I think, um, I think that somewhere on the set I would like to have. Uh, just those pictures just like dissolve, 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 dissolve. Each one of those episodes is going to be probably 40, 45 minutes. Uh, there'll be seven of those. And if we keep doing that, and the critical thing is we don't, we cannot repeat a single one because if we repeat a single one, it'll look like a loop. I don't want it to be a loop. But in any event, um, I think it would be great behind the cheddar curtain. That's great. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Andrew. Uh, so, so in any event, I think it's going to look really, 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 really good, and 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 really be kind of moody, and 
and dark and it and it needs to it needs to have um it needs to have uh something to capture just the 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 sheer horror of it uh hang on a second i'm i'm um engineers will appreciate this i'm not normal it's a little closer to normal now um Thank you very much for the uh, black sweatshirt. Uh, you probably have heard if you've been watching the show that we lost our air conditioning like, I don't know, two months ago now, still haven't gotten that fixed. However, um, uh, we um, that means we don't have any heat either. So it's got a little chilly by California standards here. Um, our friend, I won't mention his real name, but in the in the uh, uh, in the Twitch stream, uh, DFRSS is uh, about to have a baby. He's uh, joined us from uh, from Lithuania. Uh, came to the United States, joined the army. He's a great, great, great guy. Um, I was, I had book reservations to go to the to the wedding. Uh, honest to God, I had the, I had the the, reser the reservations made, and this would have been April, no March 18th, something like that of 2020. So. You know, they they shut down the, the the whole thing. But in any event, I'm sorry I couldn't have been there for that. But congratulations, uh, it's just uh, wonderful news, and um, and we're all just so proud of you. One big happy family here. So uh, so there's that. And then um, you know I don't want to get in any trouble. I really I really don't. Uh, so when I say something is very speculative, you know that's uh, that's. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, P72017 says, if you were normal, sir, I wouldn't be here. It's good to know. Thank you. Um, but anyway, congratulations. Uh, so here's here's the thing that I can... It's not even really a, a tease so much as it's a tease for a tease, you know? Tease for a tease, I think. Let's just call it that. Um, there is uh, a, a high level of probability that when I finish this um uh soviet terror masters thing we will do the videos of the america's forgotten heroes that we shot we'll just use those same scripts but the tease of the tease the pre-alpha that's perfect the, the pre it's not an alpha tease it's a pre-alpha tease um so um i did not know that edward if you can bring that back up again that'd be great so here's the pre-alpha tease uh, completely in-game captured footage uh I think after I deliver these scripts, the next thing that I'll be working on in association with Daily Wire, it's not even it's not even run up the flagpole yet, but we certainly had discussions about it. And that is, um, I believe I'll be doing, oh my God, what happened to my hair? It's an emergency. Anyway. I, I think there's a next a good chance that um, the next thing we'll be working on is a feature film about I want to do feature films about most if not all of America's Forgotten Heroes and the easiest one to do from a production point of view to start would be Frank Luke so um, my hope is that when uh, when I get this thing out the door I will um, I will crank out a, a script, a feature film script of uh, of this the Frank Luke story, which I've already all of all of them I've already enormously re uh, researched, 
and and the version that um, that finally aired as as audio is still you know it's a probably a third or a quarter of what I wrote. Uh, the um, thank you for the kind words about the uh, this is called the wave. Uh, it's not really a wave. It's more of a it's more of a you know Pacific wave. It's like a surfing wave. It's not like the classic Jack Lord wave. Uh, you know our friend uh, our friend uh, DFRS. DFRSS, Father B. Soon said Bill's voice is perfect for documentaries. I always thought Bill had the worst possible voice for documentaries, but I will grant you that it's probably relatively unique. So feature film, no, not like a docudrama, like a film, a movie, movie, a movie, movie. It's no, no narrator, no history. No, it's it's a film. It's a film about um, Frank Luke, and it would be, it would be a dramatic uh, uh, interpretation, but it wouldn't be. Um, a documentary. It, my my particular affectation for this would be to open. The, if if we can do one, then we can probably do more. Uh, Frank Look is, is is probably the simplest one, and it's also got a lot of action in it. Uh, but the action is you know World War One biplanes. Uh, anything like that's relatively easy to do. You get a live actors, obviously, and then you have a, a very minor set of uh, sets to build. You know, you got a couple of, you got like the, uh, the the squadron room hangar and stuff. In any event, it will be a feature film and uh, and tell his story, which is an amazing story. And then, you know, after that, if that if that goes well, then. You know, sky's the limit after that. I think John Paul Jones would make a great feature film. I think they all, I, I, without question, the Doolittle Raid would make a great feature film, and 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 Tappy Three is the is the ultimate goal for me. It's just that story's got to get told, and 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 uh, I I'm just watching. You know, I'm just watching. You know what? I'm going to actually. I had not thought about this, but I'm going to grab it. Um, I have been watching. Just looking for graphics on on YouTube, right? Just who, whoever's doing uh, graphics, and 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 I found this guy, Japanese guy, and what he's doing is it's unbelievable, and it just came out of nowhere, and and he's putting one out like every two or three days. I'm gonna get the one uh, that that really uh, matters. So give me a second. I'm just gonna keep talking while I'm doing this whole thing. You get the idea, but but this is this is worth doing because it give you a really good idea of what one guy at home is able to do. Uh, oh my God, I haven't seen this one yet. All right, so this will be cool. Everybody just uh, stay calm here. Uh, yeah, 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 you guys are gonna lose your minds when you see this. Uh, so this again is just a um, just a, a guy, as far as I know, it's just a regular guy uh, in Japan and he's um, he's got a thing about World War II naval vessels. And he's putting out the best computer graphics, uh, uh, certainly of, of that of that genre that I have ever seen. So hold on to your hats; I'll get two of them for you. But just this first one, I have not seen. Uh, okay, hang on. Uh, what am I doing? Uh, no. Okay. Sorry for the delay, but it's be worth it. Believe me. Copy. Open. Doom. Come on, you son of a bee! I'm so excited about this. Uh, so uh, this would be for um, for the Taffy Three thing, and it'd also be for the Doolittle thing. So uh, just just take a look at this; uh, it's un unbelievable. We can just get it downloaded. 
We'll be in business. It's only two minutes. Come up. Yeah, there we go. Uh, it's, it's, it really is breathtaking. Um, and 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 I can't. I'd love to credit the guy. I can give you. I'll put the link to his channel in the description. But virtually all of the characters are in Japanese. Uh, Japanese. You know, like I'm turning Japanese. I think I'm turning Japanese. I really think so. Turning Japanese. Okay, feast your eyes on this, kids, because uh, this is freaking amazing. And then I'll get the one. Uh, I might get two others actually, because he's got a bunch on Yamato. And he's got, uh, he's actually got an escort carrier, uh, Jeep carrier. All right, so hopefully, let's see if I can just drag and drop this.
Sorry about that. Yeah, um, I didn't know it, it loops. Uh, sorry about that. So um, anyway, that's a um, that was the Hornet, uh, early fleet carrier. Yeah, Boomer is right. Get get me somebody, you know, get some eleven year eleven year old in here to turn the board. Um, but the one I'm about to show you is a. Um, uh, uh, an escort carrier, uh, which is the kind that they were defending in uh, Taffy 3 here. I just turned the sound down uh, because I was didn't want the background sound to come in, but in any event, I'm going to leave it up this time. Here we go. This is, uh, this is the uh, escort carrier. Here's the escort carrier. This one I have a real, uh, real soft spot in my heart for because this is obviously uh, uh, Fletcher destroyer is the same kind of destroyer as the um, as the Johnston and the Ho uh, Holman and the um, Hoke. Uh, so here, here comes the last of the of the three. So, boom! boom. I love these Fletchers. I love these things. To me, that Pacific just looks great. I'm real happy with that. So um, anyway, I just thought I would uh, share that little adventure with you guys. So um, human and whole, yeah. So um, anyway, uh, the, uh, the the water looks great. So we can find. Um, we can find uh, either that or do it some other way. In any event, it's it's certainly doable. So uh, that's um, that would be nice to be able to do those things. Be real nice. So that's the uh, that's the story of um, my little trip to uh, Nashville, Tennessee. 
So now um, let's uh, let's do this. Let's um, go to Facebook. We'll take some questions. I'm running on about. I've been up since about four o'clock this morning, and I only had about four hours sleep. But that doesn't mean you're not going to get the very least energetic show that I can possibly deliver. Um, okay. All right, so we'll go to BillWhittle.com first, and I, we're starting on questions early. Good chance we can actually get to Facebook. Be nice. Uh, come on. I imagine one or two of these might have something to do with the election. Uh, if not, we will. Um, I have no doubt there will be some of those in the uh, in the Facebook page. So, uh, got a few things to say about that too. Obviously, here we go. I will move you over to here, I think. Yes, yes. Good. Okay, I think that's working. All right, uh, I just got to set up this window here, and then I probably have to put on my cogitation spectacles. Okay. Uh, Marusha, this question's from last week. I will get to it because I said I would. Don't let me move on. But I'm going to skip it for now to see if there's anything about... Um, yeah, so so I'm going to go into election stuff, but I will get to this. I'm just doing it out of order. Hopefully that'll work and you can, uh, you know, uh, chastise away, as the case may be. So uh, this is from G.K. Masterson. Uh, new question in my district. Um, is that, I guess it's uh, Mississippi District 2. There are some definite election law violations that we have physical documented proof of. Would you be willing to talk with Brian Flowers and let him share the proof they've gathered with you? and possibly help him get word out to a wider audience. I'm asking because my mother is on his volunteer staff, and this is not conspiracy theory stuff. There's real corruption down here. Yeah, uh, there's real, real corruption uh, everywhere. Uh, oh, and the Thorough Ryan says his grandfather was on the 712 Fletcher Destroyer. That's just cool. There's a couple of them still afloat. Sorry, I get distracted easily. Um, yeah, so here's the thing. Uh, I, well, yes, yeah, certainly I'd like to see, I'd like to see the data. We're, we're at the point now where uh, we did um, we did today uh, we did the first of the full scale new right angles. We came in uh, and uh, we shot it started at 5:30 in the morning and we shot about almost an hour and 20 minutes where we did we just had kind of opening banter, which it turned into I think one of the, the better segments about election integrity. And then uh, I did one about messaging. Scott, Steve Green did one about Trump, and Scott did one about uh, kind of the process that worked in uh, in Florida. So, um, so we we know that the that the corruption is there. It it doesn't seem like it was as flagrant as before, but then again, maybe it is, and maybe it didn't have to be. I don't know. But in the discuss, the reason I mentioned the show we just did was I was like really uh, pushing hard for, you know, for, for the, you know, it's funny because we supposedly we went to these electronic voting machines because it'd be faster and more convenient. Uh, now it's um, now with the electronic voting machines, instead of getting them at midnight, we get them a week or two later that the amount of uh, of of look. Scott's position was there's no more fraud with electronic voting machines than there were with paper ballots, and there's always been episodes of fraud. I don't believe that, but let's say it's true. It's not important 
at this point. What's important now is, is confidence, is people's confidence in it. And, um, and I don't have any confidence at all in these electronic systems. I have no confidence in them at all. And I think half the country doesn't have confidence in them. And so whether or not they're working then is at this point irrelevant. I've seen enough, I've seen enough squirreliness for me to be completely convinced that they're worthless. But even for the sake of the argument, let's say that they're not. It doesn't matter if they're actually working perfectly at this point because there have been enough errors in the past that people just don't trust them. I don't trust them either, you know, at all. So I think we, we need to go back to doing all the things that used to work well. Uh, it wasn't like on, you know, when we had the, um, the, the chads or the little, you know, computer cards, the simple computer cards, just the little dots, right? Uh, we, um, it wasn't like we just elected Republicans or conservatives with that system. That thing worked out really, really well for us for decades and decades and decades. And, and it was much faster and it was much more secure. And there was a, a physical record you could go back to and look at. So if you've got, uh, if you've got, um, uh, if you've got a contested election, you can go to the vault and haul them out. And then very slowly and methodically, um, oh, hi, Mike, this is the Bill Whittle channel. We talk about politics and pop culture, mostly politics on Thursday night and pop culture on uh, on Monday nights. In any event, uh, we do a show uh, three, three times a week called Right Angle. And, and as for me, I'm, I'm, I'm the voice of a generation. Um, and first time chat over there from uh, Florida Girl 1776, great name. Okay, so anyway, here's the point, right? Let's just say, um, that um, that that's the case. You can you can go back to a contested election and do it. And the point I made earlier, I'll make just now because it's a somewhat different audience. Uh, look, this the electoral system of the United States went off the rails in 2000, and I don't know if anybody really realizes exactly how far off the rails it got and how early it got off the rails. So let's just get into the wayback machine and and go back to the 2000 election in Florida. Before I start that, let me just say, because I will forget, forget it, that because of the humiliation, the national humiliation of the, of the Florida recount, Florida decided to do something about it. And now Florida is the, is the model. It's like, pow. No one's, no one's got any complaints about accuracy. They have the results within you know, half an hour of, of the polls closing. It's just everything in Florida is just working like humming. We'll, we'll get to that more later tonight. Um, but Florida 2000. So those of you who remember, remember, and those of you who are too young to remember, the election of, between George Bush and Al Gore hung on Florida. Whoever won Florida was going to win the election. And the election in Florida was so tight. I think, without question, the tightest election that there's, that there's ever been. And so, and so what you ended up with was the Democrats continuing, continuously suing, and their argument was, uh, we need to know what voter intent is. I got ahead of myself. What did the law say? And what, what was the actual law in Florida in the year 2000? Okay, it's real simple. The law for Florida in, in the 2000 election was, the votes will be counted by machine. They're all various forms of the either paper chads or the black dots. They'll be counted by machine, that will be the result. If the result falls within a certain range, it was either one or 2% of the vote, maybe even half a percent. But if it's very, very close, 
and only if it's very, very close, then there can be another recount, another mechanical recount, right? So you have a mechanical recount. If it's very close, you can get another mechanical recount. That's that's the, the rule, okay? Um, so what happens? So they run the they run the ballots. Bush wins by 520 votes, something like that. And so Gore says, well, it's, we want to recount. So they recounted it, and Bush still won. And that was the end of it. According to the law, that's it. It's over. When you had to count, okay, you got to recount. Recount shows Bush wins. Over. It's done. But that's not what happened. That's not what happened. We started rewriting the, the, the law on the fly because the Democrats said, well, a lot of people voted for for uh, for Bush and didn't want to. We had a lot of people calling us and saying, I can't believe I actually voted for Bush, the butterfly ballots and all the rest of it. Put that aside for a second because, frankly, your vote is not your opinion. Your opinion is your opinion. A vote is a, is is not an opinion. A vote is a is a process. It's a procedure. It's a it's a it's a series of steps that you have to take. And if you if you vote for the wrong guy, then okay. But that's what we saw. We saw the Democrats break the law. The law said account then a recount over. But they wouldn't let it go, and the press went with them and said, we're depriving people of their voice. Don't you think in a democracy, blah, 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 blah. And once again, I mean, once again, even then, the Republicans kind of, well, we don't want to, we don't want to be seen like, we're not depriving people. Yes, you are. There are people. It's like nobody had the guts just to say, hey, if you can't, if you cannot finish the ballot correctly, you're supposed to check it, you know. If you don't do that, then that's too bad for you. Right. If you're not smart enough to do to do that and it's not a big deal, then maybe you shouldn't be voting in the first place. They never came out and said that. No, they just let the Democrats run their their emotion machine. And so what you ended up with was all of these, not all the counties, just the ones where Gore had a chance to win. You're seeing these guys. And the, so they had these things called punch cards, the little your, your voting thing. You'd lock this paper card into a, a groove. Right. And then you had a little like a like a little pin and you just go punch punch, 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 punch. And you punch out the little squares on this paper ballot. And those squares are called, rectangles, are called chads. I don't know why, probably because it was invented by a guy named Chad. So these things are called chads, right? And when you finish doing this, virtually all the time when you hit the thing, it just detaches, right? But the instructions are, when you finish voting and you pull your ballot out of the voting machine before you drop it off into the, into the box, make sure that all the chads have been detached. Well, what we ended up seeing was, for weeks and weeks and weeks, we saw guys holding a light, holding a ballot up to a light with a magnifying glass, and they were looking for dimpled chads. In other words, they were looking for a vote for Gore that maybe, you know, oh, look, see, there's a little dent on it. See, the guy meant to vote for Gore, but it turned out that, you know, he just didn't push hard enough or something. And, and we just let it happen. We just let it happen. And, and from that moment forward, it became just a joke, right? It's whoever can make the loudest noise wins. And the left has said since then that the Supreme Court, it wasn't a, it wasn't a democracy, it wasn't a democratic vote. No, the Supreme Court selected George Bush because it was a, a Republican, slightly leading Republican court. That's not what happened. What happened was the Supreme Court said to the state of Florida, your electors will be in Washington on the date that they're supposed to be, and you don't get to keep counting until you get the answer you want. They, whatever you do internally is your business, but they have to be here on time. 
And once they realized they couldn't just keep counting and counting and counting and coming up with, oh, look, my God, what a, what a, what a nut. I, I forgot to bring my, my, um, my station wagon uh, I, I, that, that I bring the ballots to the counting center for. I, I, it looks like I left a box on the floor. Yep, yep, um, um, hard to believe, huh? Yeah, what a knucklehead. Anyway, here they are. So 600 votes for Al Gore. Okay, how many for Bush? None. none. That's, that's literally happened in the Al Franken campaign. Somebody found, found some thousand votes or something, every one of them for, for Al Franken. Amazing how that thing works, right? If we cannot enforce this, if we cannot have confidence in the voting system, then that is the end, not only of this country and this republic, it's the end of, it's the, end of the idea of a republic, right? If, if you cannot count, if you cannot depend upon the legitimacy of the vote. Look, I understand there will always be some cheating, right? Some precinct somewhere, somebody's going to lose something. You got 300 million people. Yes. But this was, this was in the, in the case of 2000, this was statewide. And now we're talking about systemic problems. And, and I'm just trying to be fair about this, right? It's, it's at the point now, this is what should really scare people because this isn't a conservative or a liberal thing. Our country's at the point now where if we win an election, the left will say that we cheated. And if the left wins election, we'll say that they cheated because the electoral system is so badly, horribly mangled and is so far away from uh, legitimacy and accountability and transparency and all the rest of it that, that whoever, if you, if you wanted to destroy this country, the best way and the fastest and the easiest way that you could do it would be to make the American public lose faith in the electoral system, both sides, right? And that's where we are right now. So uh, as far as your question goes, um, GK, yeah, I'd, I'd certainly love to hear about it. And and the problem is that, uh, needless to say, I thought this thing was going to be a blowout. Uh but you can't fix the problem until you, until you get elected. Now, as it turns out, however, as it turns out, um, the, uh, and I'm, I'm, general, I'm, I'm generally in favor of this. In fact, I'm almost universally in favor of federalism, which is kind of a weird name for the movement that is against the federal government. Federalism is the idea that the state should have as much power as possible. Uh, so every state has different election standards, different election mechanisms, so on. And and in order to change those, you can't change those at the federal level. You, that's not something Congress can do. It's not something if you had the House, the Senate, and the President can do. That's something that you have to do um, at the state level. And a state level is easier to do. So, I mean, stay with me on this, right? If you, if you, um, if you clean it up in the red states, the only place that you probably wouldn't have a good chance of going in there and, and fixing the problem on a state level would be the bluest of the blue states. They're probably gone anyway. You know, if they want to have a, a corrupt elect, elect, election system to go along with their ridiculous economic model and their taxation, then that's fine. They can just slowly rust away, you know, like they're doing now. But as far as the rest of it goes, we, we got to get this thing uh, in shape. Now, with all that said, with all that said, uh, I don't think that that the red wave was there and that we got cheated out of it. Uh, I don't think there's any evidence of that. Uh, now, I have a completely different opinion about 2020, but, but I didn't see, and maybe, they, maybe it didn't happen because it didn't have to happen. But much more important to talk about what we did wrong than to talk about things like this. I'm not trying to minimize it, uh, GK. I, I, in fact, I want to hear the details. But to, but to make a case for this again,
especially on a on a like on a national level is it's it's news to nobody right it's like if i if i say hey here's evidence of voter fraud who's going to be convinced we already believe that there's voter fraud and the other side's already been told that there's voter fraud so the only issue is what can people agree upon and since the republicans don't know how to argue a moral argument then then we'll continue to get this garbage and do you want to know what the moral argument is it's it's a real easy one right real easy the moral argument for this is you say we have to have an election day if you if you have to, you, you can't have an absentee ballot you have to apply for it months in advance and these are issued only with a legitimate reason for why you can't vote in person for example in pennsylvania we got some questions about the fetterman race uh, when I got to Nashville, the first thing I heard was that 700,000 people in Pennsylvania had already voted before the Fetterman debate with Oz, right? Before the debate. So, you know, uh, in the discussion we had this morning, Scott was in favor of, he didn't have a problem with early voting. I have a huge problem with it. Or, and I have a huge problem with mail-in voting as well, because I think they're all, I think they're all conducive to error. Forget fraud, error. And uh, and so the argument you'll hear is, well, you know, it's more convenient to, to vote. To, I live in California. We, we got our ballots two months before, before the election. So the argument would be, well, it's much more convenient, you know. Well, this isn't about convenience. It's not a big, big deal, you know, for you to have control of the country that you live under to two times, you know, once every two years go down, spend a couple hours. That doesn't seem to me like an unreasonable um, demand on your time to have an election day. That's number one. Number two, the argument about voter ID, and this is the one that I just want to use to just drive through a, drive the stake through the heart of these people. Really, I really do. All the progressives say that asking, that requiring you to prove who you are, requiring you to prove who you are, meaning voter ID, show an ID, show your driver's license or whatever at the at the polling place. They say it suppresses the vote because black people are not capable of getting IDs. That's exactly what they say. It's what they see on campuses. This guy did this great interview. He went to um, a number of campuses, or at least one progressive campus, talked to a bunch of young, rich, white kids, and every single one of those young, rich, white kids said that, uh, oh, no, black people, no, it's it's completely unfair to black people because they, they, they can't go down and get IDs the way as easily as white people do. So then the same guy went into the middle of a black neighborhood and, and said, do you think they should IDs for vote? And they said, well, of course you should have IDs for vote. And then he said, well, do you, would you believe me if I told you that a bunch of white uh, progressive kids at camp, college campuses said that you guys aren't able to get IDs? In other words, these white progressives are saying you're not smart enough to get an ID. And some of the people just plain laughed. They said, well, how am I going to, you know, how am I going to buy wine with my dinner? What am I going to, how am I going to get on an airplane? Well, black people don't get on airplanes, you see. Black people aren't capable of getting on airplanes. They're not capable of, of getting on airplanes because they're not capable of going down to get an ID. And that's the racism that's so inherent in these people. It's just this constant, 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 um, what's the word I'm looking for? Just this constant patronizing attitude. And it's garbage. So if somebody were to throw the voter ID thing at me, I would hit him, I would hit him with that and say, unlike you, 
unlike you Democrat racists, you slaveholders, the, the, you know, the Confederacies, the Democratic Party leaving the Union, unlike you and your entire history in this republic, I don't think that black people are inferior to white people. I don't think that black people are incapable of getting an ID. I don't think it's too much to ask a black person to spend one day every two years to go and elect a government when it's not unreasonable to ask that of a white person or, a, or, a, or an Asian person or Latino. It's condensation, thanks. I just couldn't get the word condensation. That's what it is. And just smack them and just keep smacking them in the face with how unbelievably racist that is. What do you mean you don't know it's suppression? Now, there's a better argument. There's a better argument because you got to put these things into the ground and then you have to hammer a stake through their heart and then you have to take the corpse of the vampire and you have to burn it with gasoline and you have to mix the ashes with concrete and you have to throw the concrete in the, into the Marianas Trench. That's what you have to do with these, these kind of things. The bigger argument is people will say, well, it's, you know, if there's a little voter fraud, then, uh, you know, voter suppression is worse than voter fraud because voter suppression is you're taking somebody's vote away. Voter fraud is voter suppression, and voter suppression is voter fraud. Voter fraud is voter suppression. If, if I cast a legal ballot, and I go straight Republican down the ticket, and an illegal voter, or somebody who's voting twice, casts another ballot that goes straight Democrat, that person has canceled my vote. They've stolen my vote. So if somebody, if somebody illegally votes the opposite of me, then they have stolen my vote. If, if it turns out that they legally vote the opposite of me, that's how the machine works. But to say that, to say that, oh, well, it doesn't really matter that we, you know, that we make sure that the citizens, as long as every vote is counted, it doesn't matter if there's extra votes in there. No, it matters enormously, enormously that, that, that there's extra votes in there. Enormously matters because the people that they are recruiting to vote without IDs, because that's what they're doing, they're recruiting people to come and vote without IDs, are the people who vote for Democrats. If it turned out that all of the illegal voters in this country were, you know, PhDs from Germany who voted Republican, then you can guarantee you we would not only have ID cards, we would have probably tattoos or something. We'd probably have some ir irreducible proof that you are who you say you are. So, yeah, there's a lot to talk about in terms of the uh, elections. So, um, look, Marisha, I'd, I mean, uh, GK, I'd like to see it. Uh, I'd, I'd like to see it from my own curiosity. What I do without afterwards, I don't know. It'll depend on, on, on what it consists of. Um, all right. It's got a rocket on it. Good enough for me. So from uh, Henry Lumley, and don't worry, there's plenty more elections uh, stuff coming up. Uh, uh, from Henry Lumley, has a big picture of a rocket engine. It says, hey, Bill, since the Monday show got burned, uh, bumped, uh, and this does have a political side of the question, I wanted to share a post from SpaceX on Twitter as of last Friday. They completed the build on their 200th Raptor 2 rocket engine. They are apparently building them at a rate of one Raptor 2 per day. See, when you're building one enormously efficient, effective, reusable rocket engine a day, you're serious. Do you hear what I said, Boeing? Funny enough, the Merlin vacuum engine team completed their 200th Merlin vacuum second stage on the same weekend. So they're different engines. Uh, and the reason they're different engines is because, well, a lot of reasons, but the main reason is on a first stage, you generally need an awful lot more thrust, less efficiency. And also the design of a rocket bell is different in the atmosphere than it is in a vacuum. Just 
get maximum efficiency out of it. To juxtapose these production numbers, I've also included a picture of, the of four of the RS-25 engines used on the Space Launch System. Those are used engines from the shuttle program, and they cost $100 million each. These particular engines have made 21 flights previously during the shuttle program, but thanks to SLS, they'll be thrown away for four per launch. Yeah, yeah. So what do you say about SLS other than this? You know what people say, why don't we have a government health care? It's like, well, we have a government space program. We have a private space program. Why don't we just compare these two? Why don't we do that, right? One guy is building a rocket engine a day. They'll get hundreds of flights out of these things. He's using his own money, by the way. He's not taking your money against you. He's just using his own money to build these rocket engines. And he reuses them. And he's going to get the launch cost down to probably 1% of what it, what it used to be. And NASA, the government, is using reusable rocket, is using reusable rocket engines from the shuttle and throwing them away four at a time. So what does that tell you? about the Artemis program. It tells you that we have a fixed number of shuttle engines. I don't know what that number is, but I would want to guess it's probably in the neighborhood of 70 or 80, something, I don't know. And when those things are gone, then Artemis is gone. The entire program is gone, right? We're going to use reusable engines. We're going to chuck them in the ocean. That's the government. That's how government works. It's just unbearably, disgracefully stupid. Okay, Henry, Henry's got another space question. I'll skip that for the time being. Um, Rodney Rowe, uh, this site is really confusing as to how to post questions, but here I go again trying to post for Bill. Thank you, Rodney. Thank you for your persistence, and we'll take a look at that. Here's a brief instructional video on how to turn on Super Chats and th shoot Super Thanks. Okay, so um, here's what I'm going to do, because uh, I've been known to be a little bit absent-minded at times. I, I click the link, and I'm going to take that link, and I'm going to turn it into a separate window, and then I will watch it when we are done. Um, and it concludes with take our money, please. And I would be delighted. Thank you very much to go on for the trouble for that. That's exactly what I was looking for. And um, uh, hopefully I can get uh, on that tomorrow because I'm going to be in here tomorrow, by golly. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, yeah. Yes, yeah, offering my nephew a couple hundred bucks. He's highly qualified because he's 14. And I'm not joking either. That's his primary qualification. But thank you for the suggestion. I appreciate the link very much. I'll try to get those in next uh, next show. From Charles Tomes, uh, from an undisclosed location in the Midwest, Darth Chuck the Merciless posits. Well, there's a sentence for you. Darth Chuck the Merciless posits. On a recent voyage, I was conversing with a company owner that specializes in small diameter tubing assemblies. Their largest customer is the contractor upgrading the M1 Abrams tank. The assemblies were designed in the late 1970s such that there are bends and other features in place that make them impossible to manufacture using modern CNC machines. Everything is handmade on antique equipment. This brings to mind two topics. One, is making something excellent a double-edged sword? If it's good enough, then would it be more likely to be replaced in the market sooner using current and less expensive manufacturing, but if it's so good that 50 years later it would cost more to design a newer, to design and build a newer, easier to build replacement, you end up rewinging the B-52 and the A-10, re-engineering the KC-135 B-52. Uh, two businesses booming, all the countries that have Russian tanks are buying used, upgraded M1 Abrams thanks to Vlad's folly. I find that somehow both wonderful and slightly alarming. I don't want to ever face an Abrams. Uh, 
This is hard intel, not speculation. So the opinion and speculation that Russian military hardware will be trash is absolutely correct with hard numbers behind it, at least for main battle tanks. Discuss that as all. Thank you, Charles. So uh, the first people who are um, who are dealing with the catastrophe of the quality of uh, Russian uh, equipment are the Russians. The second people that are dealing with are the Ukrainians because the Ukrainians are using a mix of legacy Russian, probably Soviet equipment, but that's not what they're that's not what they're winning with. They're winning with state-of-the-art Western equipment. They're winning with javelins and MLAs and 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 stingers, and we've been down that road a thousand times. But the real loser here, the real loser here is the is the is the player that either bought or copied all of this Russian gear, thinking that it was at least a rough match for Western stuff, and that's China. So China's jets are all derivatives of the SU, you know, 38, uh, the SU-27, the SU-35. They've just, they've just reverse engineered it. They've got their new, was it the J-20 so-called stealth jet uh, that, the, um, that the Chinese have? Things the size of a barn. And, and you know, and the felon, the, the, the Russian uh, stealth jet, supposed uh, fifth-generation fighter, um, uh, yeah, if you could hit, hit the like button, that would be great, by the way. Thank you. Somebody, uh, Jeffrey Adams, pointed that out. Um, so look, as far as I'm concerned, it's, way, it's vaporware until it's in combat, okay? Uh, they've only got, I think, six, six felons in the world, total manufactured. So that alone means it's not a threat. But in addition to that, um, uh, where's the divorce and can support uh, DeSantis? Okay, well... Uh, so a uh, little NATO simp. Yeah, it's me. I'm a NATO simp, Joe, Joe Blow. I am absolutely a NATO simp. Um, so uh, back to NATO. Um, the weapons that we have work and the, um, and the weapons that the Russians don't and the weapons that the Chinese copied from the Russians don't. And I will believe that those two jets are fighter jets, stealth fighter jets, when I see them in combat. Until then, it's just it's just an assertion, right? It's an assertion. Uh, stealth is not easy. Uh, <laughs> Kisama Owen says the Chinese stealth jet is so good it doesn't exist. Well done, well done. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, so I saw for the first time, just a couple days ago, by happy coincidence, the new version of the M1. Is it the M1? It's not the M1A2. It, it's it's really pretty cool looking. Let's see if I can uh, if I can find that. Um, uh, yeah, because it's it's like oh, uh, they've changed uh, significant changes. It still looks like an M1, but I, I don't think there's anybody in the turret now. I think the turret's entirely remote. Hang on a second. M1 Yeah, this thing I saw. Yeah, there it is. It's just kind of cool. The M1A2. It, it, it's pretty revolutionary, at least the picture I saw. Yeah, here we go. Uh, kids, hopefully this will work. So here's the the next generation of the M1, according to uh, Popular Mechanics. I'll scale it up a little bit for you. So you can see a family resemblance, but there's a lot of new stuff there. And, um, and that tank looks Badass to me, frankly. It just looks like a mean, mean, mean tank. Turret certainly seems to be uh, smaller. The Abram X, yeah. Oh, so it's a it's a technology demonstrator. Okay, fair enough. 
I'm glad that we're getting a new tank because the Abrams has been uh, been out there for, it's getting a little long in the tooth. But to go to your question, uh, Charles, the, the issue is occasionally, uh, occasionally you can build something that is so close to perfect that it, it really doesn't, why doesn't this just delete? So close to perfect that um, that you, there's almost no replacement. I don't know what the hell the problem with that thing is. All right, we're, we're just going to go away then. All right. Um, one more time. Go. All right, gone. Um, so you build, so uh, you build, the, the examples you gave are great examples, right? The, the um, there's some classic airplanes out there. C-130 Hercules is a classic design. There's no way to improve on that design for that um, for that mission. The the C-17 is an astonishingly capable aircraft, and it is uh, and it is in many ways more capable than the C-130. But it is bigger and it and it lands faster, and um, and so the C-130 Hercules isn't being replaced because there's no need to replace it. You can't improve on it; just make it worse. It's like Lord of the Rings, um, and the same is true for the B-52, right? There have been proposals since I was, you know, this high to take jetliners and convert them into bombers. It seems like a good idea. 767 could hold, I don't know, I want to say 15, 20 times the bomb load of a B-52. Have you ever seen a B-52 up close? It's a small airplane. By modern standards, it really is. Once you get into these wide-body jets and you're used to looking out the window at 767s and things like that, B-52 is a shockingly small airplane. So is a B-29, so is a B-17. Um, I, <laughs> I look like I'm getting my hair cut. Well said, exactly, drunk MTG. It's like, get that little thing here, you know, a little talc here, a little brush, you know, we're good to go. So as far as the M1 goes, is it, was it, bit, I guess the answer to that is, I don't think you can retroactively go back and say they made the wrong decision by making this essentially a custom handmade barrel, right? This tank came out in the, in the I want to say in the late 70s. It was designed to do what it was supposed to do in the Cold War, which is kill Soviet tanks coming through the Fulda Gap. And while we never had a chance, as I pointed out in America's, uh, in the Civil War episode on this, sorry, the Cold War episode on this, we never got a chance to, t to test the Abrams against, um, against the T-72 in Germany, thank God. But we did get a chance to, um, to test them at, um, is it 71 Easting? It's, no, it's the grids. I knew all this stuff. Um, the tank battle against Iraq where they, where um, McMaster's uh, Eagle group of M1s uh, took out everything. They just took out he, he, he personally, I think, either McMaster personally or certainly his platoon took out three T-72s in less than 10 seconds. I think it was his tank. Uh, six, is it 63 Easting? I don't remember. I'm embarrassed to say. Um, 73 Easting. Thank you. I knew it was a, a number and an Easting. Um, okay, so, so while we didn't get to, ch to check it against the Soviets, we did get to check it against the Iraqis. Now, to be fair, they're probably not as well-trained as the Soviets were, but then again, the Soviets weren't as well trained as the Soviets were. So, the the, the level of dominance of the M1 over the T72 in Iraq 
shows that if we had had to face Soviet armor in Europe, we would have eaten their lunch, especially after Ukraine. Because as far as Ukraine goes, everybody's saying, oh, Russian weapons are no good and, and the Russian morale is no good. Both of those are true, but it's the Russian doctrine. It's their command and control. It's all of the invisible stuff that, that wins wars, right? We have, we have air land doctrine. Now it's land, air, space, and sea doctrine. So we, the U.S. system is, 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 makes it look easy because cause we put a lot of thought into it. You know? what, what happens in the U.S. armed forces doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. Most countries don't have the doctrine or the technology, and most Western countries have the technology, but they don't have enough units to actually do what we do on the scale we do. The U.S. military can have a can have. Oh, thank you, um, Richard. Got it right. Got to get them all in there. It's like the uh, like the LGBTQ uh, blah, blah, blah. land, sea, air, space, cyber, and human. Okay, but basically, what it comes down to is, in our military, we don't send the army. We send the military. So, a sergeant with a radio can make a phone call to an Air Force satellite, which gets relayed to a uh, Navy um, carrier, which puts it on a uh, an F-18 jet, which is refueled by an Air Force ta uh, tanker, and then, boom, and it just does it, and it just works. And the the Russian system is unbearable, unbearable. So, um, anyway, uh, I do have a, a kind of a cool story about that, though. Um, this business of like building a custom, custom thing. Uh, I was at a, was at a hangar oh, seven, eight years ago, something like that. And somebody, a wealthy, wealthy guy, had a lot of, of restored aircraft, a lot of restored aircraft. And he had a P-51 that looked like it rolled off the assembly line about 15 minutes ago. Uh, it, it's absolutely, everything on it is pristine and it's 100% P-51. It's just, it's amazing, right? Amazing. Uh, and when I was talking to the guys that were doing the rest restoration of that, because it's not the original aluminum, main, on some level it's probably not even the original plane. They reskinned everything and you, know, you get the idea. But the story that I got told by the guys who were doing the restoration on the P-51 was anybody who knows anything about airplanes knows that the P-51 has this incredibly cool belly scoop. It's, it's, it's the defining characteristic of that airplane. And it is aerodynamically designed, believe it or not, so that the scoop actually generates a little bit of thrust. Not, not drag, a little bit of thrust. Don't ask me. I don't know how, but it's, it's what I've heard. So anyway, it's a very complex thing to build because it's, it's one perpetual curve in, in, in three dimensions. It's, it's constantly, constantly curving, and it's perfect and beautiful. So... The guy's doing the um, doing the uh, uh, restoration. It's no problem. They they just found a existing P fifty one. Maybe it was the original airplane. Who knows? And they basically made a cast of the scoop, and then they turned that into a plug, and then they hammered the aluminum down around it. Right, and sure enough, there's your shape. Well, they did this, and they couldn't get the aluminum off. It wouldn't pop off the the, the plug. They couldn't get it off, and and they tried everything. They tried all kinds of you know, 
like these super new, you know, Teflon anti-stick things didn't work. They did all of this stuff. They couldn't get this piece of aluminum to pop off of this, off of this plug. So they called, looked around, and they found a guy who had worked at North American Aviation and had built the original, been on the assembly line for the original P-51. And according to the story that, that, that I heard, as I heard it from the guys, he said, no, it generates thrust, thrust, believe it or not. Um, it's not powering the airplane, but it's, you get the idea. So the story I heard from these guys was that they got a hold of a guy who used to work at North American, and he said, they said to him, uh, sir, we got a problem. We're, 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 we're doing restoration on a P-51, and we've got a problem. We were wondering if maybe you could help us with it. And without any further prompting, I said, you can't get the, can't get the belly scoop to pop off the plug, can you? And everybody's just like looking at each other. It's like, how did you know? I said, yeah, yeah, we had a lot of problems with that. So what you, now, this part I'm making up. The rest of it is verbatim. This part I'm making up because I don't remember the details. But basically he said, okay, so what you need to do is you need to go out, get four parts bacon grease, uh, you know, um, uh, four crayons, melt those down, whatever, right? He gives them this list of things in order this is what you need, and here's the parts, and so on. Mix that up, slap it on there, and it'll pop right off. And that's what they did, and that's what happened. So that's a great example of um, of painting yourself into a corner where the people who used to know how to do something don't exist anymore. And when I talked with Mike Rowe, he said, no, it was, I don't know, it was Mike Rowe or, or John Ratzenberger has been on this too. But they said that we could not build the uh, Golden Gate Bridge today if we wanted to. If the thing, if the thing got down uh, for whatever reason, then we couldn't, we couldn't rebuild that, that bridge. We'd have to build something else. We couldn't rebuild that bridge. We don't know how to do it. And that is a little distressing, you know, a little distressing. Um, so... Uh, I'm glad to hear uh, that um, that they're upgrading the Abrams, uh, and the Abrams had a big part in the Cold War, even though the Cold War was never fought. One of the reasons it was never fought, Thousand Island Dressing, yes, that's it. That's exactly right. Uh, Leo AOC says, uh, and Thousand Island Dressing, was th that's right, he said Thousand Island Dressing, I remember now. Um, so um, anyway, that's that. Here's Martin Archer. Uh, back in Paleolithic times and early Neolithic, humans lived in small tribes. Those who didn't pull their weight and do their fair share of the hunting, gathering, and crop tending were cast out from the tribe, much like the Harfoots. Uh, those cast-offs may well have died in the wild by themselves. The thinning of the herd would improve the gene pool and make for a tight-knit tribe, which may well have cultivated more productive teamwork and led to human progress. Nowadays, such parasites get jobs for life, can't be fired, over generous pensions, government work, or uh, or become permanent welfare dependents, now that there aren't plenty of people on welfare who truly need it, and generally paras parasitize wherever they go. Sadly, I think that over recent generations, the gene pool has been weakened. All you need to do is look around you here, and in the rest of the world, parasitic leftism has triumphed, and we live in their world now, not our own. Uh, Suggestion for Stratosphere Studio, wear a short sleeve shirt and tie like in the 1960s Mission Controller. 
I was going to say, I, I won't do it unless I have the pocket protector and the slide rule, but he said, with the pocket protector and the slide rule. Great. Good idea. Um, I like that idea. Okay, so, um, you know, those of you who've got your drinking bingo cards out, here it comes. Here comes the, um, here comes the, um, here comes the big trifecta. Uh, I talked about this every week for six months or longer, but now I haven't talked about it for several years. So it's time to talk about it again. Uh, everybody lean back and relax. You're about to get, you're about to get the arcade, uh, the arcade story. So many of you who are regulars on Stratosphere Lounge know this story, 300 people live. This is great. If you stay for one thing, stay for this, because this is actually very cool. Um, so a researcher was trying to figure out why, why do people become either liberals or conservatives? What is it about a person's psych psychology that draws them to these two relatively oppositional um, ways of doing things, philosophies. Some people just seem born to become liberals and others seem to be born to become conservatives. What is it that's actually driving that? We did an awful lot of research on, um, on specifically mammalian biology. And what he found was, was that different types of animals have a different reproductive strategy, which means that since that is the successful reproductive strategy, not for that particular species, but for that kind of an animal, then whatever is working is working, and that's what gets passed down. But what he found was that the, that the reproductive strategy of creatures like rabbits is very, very different than the reproductive strategy of creatures like wolves. Very different. So uh, he basically came up with a, uh, an equation and basically said r slash k, r of a k over area, I think. But basically, r is the reproductive rate. And I think the k is the, is it the land area? It doesn't matter. Forget that I don't know that. Here's, here's what it comes down to, okay? For rabbits to succeed, the best strategy for rabbits is to have as many children as possible and to invest as little time in them as possible because any time that you expend on a rabbit more than the bare bones minimum is time that you are wasting because you could be making new rabbits, right? So the K is carrying capacity of the land, right? Okay, so here you go. So basically, imagine that there's an endless field of clover, right? Just endless clover. And you put a couple of rabbits in there. Well, the rabbits are going to do what rabbits do, and then they're going to quickly have a large number of offspring. They're going to grow to sexual maturity very fast. They're going to have offspring, and it's just going to geometrically multiply until they know, until it's an endless field of rabbits. Why does that work for rabbits? Well, it works for rabbits because they're prey animals, primarily, and you can spend, a mother or father rabbit can spend four years raising a baby rabbit, but they're not going to make the rabbit go any faster. They're not going to make the rabbit any smarter. They're not going to. They're not going to improve the rabbit's chances of survival by investing more time on the rabbit. That is called the R strategy. In other words, we're going to make. It, it's also, by the way, and I don't know if I've ever made this connection before. If I haven't, it's long overdue. This is the Cold War, by the way. The Cold War was an RK struggle. The Soviets said, "Let's make lots and lots and lots of stuff." That's the R strategy. That's the rabbit strategy. Let's make lots and lots of rabbits. Anything we do beyond making more rabbits is a waste of time because we could be making new rabbits rather than making these ones better. Now, the opposite of that is the strategy that wolves have. Wolves are, are, are a K-type species. 
wolves have a much smaller, much more limited food supply. Rabbits can eat lots and lots of grass, but a wolf has to, has to work, especially in the wintertime. And since the wolf is a hunter, a predator, the techniques of being a predator, how you sneak up on prey and so on, those are things that have to be taught. Doesn't take a lot of intelligence to sneak up on a blade of grass, but to, but to, but to become a hunter, successful hunter, you will see this with all mammalian predators. You see it with lions, you see it with, um, with orcas, you see it with uh, wolves, you see it with all of them. The predators have a completely different strategy than the prey. The prey strategy is make as many copies of ourselves as possible, Predators will take some, but this is the this is the way to bet. The the predator strategy is okay. We if we make lots and lots of wolves, the wolves will starve. They'll starve because there's not enough food for them, but mostly they'll starve because they're not very good hunters, and they're not very good hunters because we haven't spent time on them. So the K strategy is instead of making lots and lots of things, make far fewer things, but make them much more capable. It's an investment to teach a, 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 a wolf puppy how to hunt. It's an investment, it takes a lot of time compared to, and, and the breeding rate is slower, and the number of children is slower, all of that. But for the predator, the, the K strategy, the quality strategy is the way to go. Same thing with NATO. We didn't want the money, and we especially didn't want to lose the lives. We, the Soviets would take as many losses as they needed. They just, you're seeing it in Ukraine now. Throw people at it until it goes away. We weren't willing to take those casualties. And since we weren't willing to take those casualties, we couldn't go one-to-one -one with them because we'd lose as many people as they would, and, and we're not willing to do that. So we had to go with a case strategy. In the Cold War, we had to say, we don't have as many weapons as the Soviets do, not nearly as many weapons. So our weapons have to be much better than theirs. That's what we're good at, is the technology. So it's not like one of our fighters has to beat one of their fighters. One of our fighters has to beat eight of their fighters. That's basically how the numbers worked out. And I personally am very much drawn to this, to this case strategy, and virtually everybody listening to this is the same way. Now, here's where it gets interesting. What this guy found was, was, that, was that there are parts of the brain that are, believe it or not, more developed in conservatives than there are in liberals and vice versa. And he found that most of these have to deal with the amygdala, which is the amygdala, which is the um, it's, like, it's like the warning center of the brain. But there's noticeable differences between people who are extremely liberal and extremely conservative. And so what he found was was that because humans are so adaptable, we live everywhere. We live in the snow. We live in jungles. We live in deserts. We live in caves. We live on the ocean. We, we humans adapt to anything, and they eat anything. Because we're so adaptable we are capable of both of those strategies. In fact, we're not only capable of being either R or K, we're capable of switching as the environment switches. So when there's an abundance of things and you don't have to hunt and you don't have to work hard, then R is the way to go because it's an endless field of clover, right? When things get tough, then you have to go to the K strategy because now there's not enough food, everybody's gonna die if you don't get good at doing something and you can only have fewer of them. And what he found was, was, that, was that you could measure a shift in the, in the psychology of humans from R to K and back again, depending on how much ambient prosperity there is. In other words, are we in a, an endless field of clover or are we on uh, you know, a frozen mountainside where we have to track a single, you know, 
grab it forever and you know, hope to catch it, right? Not a lot of food out there. And so what happens is when a society is in trouble, when they're struggling, they go to the, the K strategy. When they're struggling, they realize that they have to make the best people they can, not the most people they can, the best people they can. When society becomes comfortable enough, then they no longer have that biological imperative to invest effort and time into each individual person. Why? Right? So, so, the, so the, the analogy is really simple. If, if you live in a society where you want to succeed and, and, and you, want to, you basically want to get ahead or at least stay even, it's probably worth your while, if your kid wants to be a doctor, it's probably worth your while to spend 20 years, who am I kidding, 25, 30 years of education on that kid and $400,000, $500,000 more maybe because he wants to be a doctor and that doctor will pay for that because of the value of the doctor because the doctor is extremely good at something. So that's a case selection to have a doctor. Now, if you take that exact same kid and that exact same parent, and it turns out that not only is it possible for the kid who's going to spend 20 years of hard work and half a million dollars of training, not only is it possible for him to make a living, but rapidly approaching the point where he's making about the same living as the doctor, then there's no point in doing the K. There's no reason to do it. K is hard. R is easy. So... As society becomes more and more affluent and we have more and more money, we do more and more of these welfare things. We start paying people not to work. And as we pay more people not to work, then that becomes the smart play. It's not, it's not unreasonable. It's perfectly logical. If everything is free, why would you work? So there you go. Now, the reason people have problems with this is, is because Americans are extraordinarily K extraordinarily K. All of the qualities of, of predators are strong in Americans. And for those of you who are ready to say, oh, you know, war for oil and all the rest of that stuff, the kind of things I'm talking about are K-selected species are extremely territorial aware. If you have a pack of wolves and another pack of wolves comes into that pack of wolves territory, then they are going to fight each other to the death. And pretty soon there's only going to be one pack of wolves left because there's not enough food on the land for both of them. So they get very, very good at fighting. And not only get good at fighting, they get good at things like hierarchy. Wolves have a very clear st social structure. There's the top wolf, alpha wolf, and everybody knows their place because they have to cooperate. Rabbits don't cooperate. Rabbits don't have to cooperate. You don't need any help to eat the clover. You just sit right next to the guy, right? So, so those qualities of competition and cooperation are K-type behaviors. And, and there's no reason to have a competitive rabbit because he, if the food is endless, why would you invest the time and effort to make a better rabbit when it, it's not going to benefit you? So that's basically it. So what this guy is basically saying is, is that not only are people attracted to either one or the other um, uh, political party because they tend to represent those values that are very different to each other. But over time, the population will change, and we're becoming more our population every day. We're getting softer, less. The entire idea of competition is becoming anathema, at least to the left, right? Correct? I mean, 
They don't want to come. They don't want to compete. Do you know who you know who doesn't want to compete? Losers don't want to compete. Losers want losers want everything to be equal because they know that they're not going to be as good as the average. And they're certainly not going to be as good as the as the peak. If there's free competition, then the people who are the worst at doing things are the ones who are going to suffer more. So they want they want everything equal, and the only way to make it equal, since they can't be more than what they are, is they want a society where the successful people are shackled and brought down to their level. That's what they consider to be fair and justice. That is equality of outcome. That's a form of equality. That's what equity is, right? You've got all these advantages, so we're going to take from you. We're going to give it to all these people who, who don't have any advantages and so on and so on and so on. So we're going to shackle this person, essentially steal from them, and give it to somebody else who may in fact be needy or may in fact be doing nothing but sitting watching TV or playing computer games while watching the internet. Nobody watches TV anymore, right? So, so the more of this free stuff is available, the more uh, rational this our strategy is. The problem is that if things go south, and they do, then there is a mass die-off, right? There's a mass die-off, and only things that survive are, are, are the case. Because if that endless field of clover goes away, now you've just, just a few patches of grass, those millions and millions of rabbits that you put out there, they're all just going to starve to death. Some of them will survive, and eventually enough of them will survive so that they'll match the, the balance with the predators, but there's going to be this huge die-off of rabbits. So, so there you go, right? You got, an endless, you got an endless field of clover, all this prosperity. You got millions of rabbits. If those clover goes away, those rabbits are going to die off. The wolves that are hunting the rabbits are not going to get hurt nearly so bad because they don't have as many numbers, right? They're much more specialized. So we are an extremely K, we were, an extraordinarily K-based um, society because things like initiative. Now, even though Clint Eastwood, uh, my buddy, you know, Clint, I, I just call him Clint, um, says, uh, made a film about this. It wasn't a great film because he used the actual people, and I think that was a mistake. One of the few mistakes he's made. But in any event, I want to say this was during the Bush years. I'm not 100% sure of the date, but that seems about right, like 2007, 8, somewhere around there. Might, might have been early Obama. I don't know. I don't remember. But there was a, a train, a European train filled with Europeans on it, and somebody came on board the uh, train. Uh, a Muslim came on board the train, and he had a, a gun and a couple of other guns, and he started shooting up the train. And what the Europeans did, mostly French people, what they did was they got on their phones and called their wives or loved ones to say goodbye because we're all going to die here because this guy's got a gun and there's nothing we can do. Well, this guy starts shooting up this train. He doesn't get very far because three guys on the train get up and rush the guy with the gun, take it from him, and either kill him or incapacitate him. Right? And the three guys who were on that train who did that, full, full train full of people, the three people that moved were three Americans. I don't know if they were the only Americans on the train, but there were only Americans that made the move. Although I seem to remember maybe a Canadian had something to do with it, but in a, a virtually positive, it was just these three Americans, right? One or two of them were ex-military, but what they all were were 
they were all humans that had grown up in a society where initiative is valued, where competition is valued, where confidence, where mostly it's initiative, right? It's the ability to say something's happening. I have to act rather than sit here, watch the house burn down. I got to go in there and save the people. 517 to Paris, it's called. Yeah, great. So it actually happens. It happens all the time. And, and if you think about it from, a, from a, an evolutionary point of view, from a, just from a genetic point of view, it makes perfect sense, right? There is, in fact, uh, I have a friend who, who knows enough about biology that she was able to tell me which gene and which allele it is located on, but there is, in fact, a gene that codes for audacity, uh, risk-taking, right? And Americans have this in a large degree. Why? Is it because we were just born cool? No. It's because... America is settled by people who were unwilling to stay back where the famine was or where the czar was or wherever what it was. Everything uniformly sucks over there. A small but significant number of people had enough initiative to say, I'm out of here. I'm going to go across the world. I'm going to say goodbye to my village and my family. I'll never see them again. And I'm going to go to a country I've never seen before because I believe that things will be better over there. That is an enormous risk, right? That's an enormous risk. So, Zagari says, uh, Bill, eugenics is, is, this isn't eugenics. It's nothing about eugenics. This is just plain common sense. This isn't eugenics. Eugenics is, is, is the manipulation of people for, for an outcome. This is just real. This is just, this is real. And it doesn't apply to white people. It applies to everybody. It applies to anybody who comes to this country, no matter what their color or race or whatever it is. If you've got the guts to get up and leave and come to this place, then that's because you've got that gene expressing itself that way. It's not eugenics. It's just behavior, right? So there it is. Um, so there you go. Uh, okay. Have a good time, Dave. Um, in any event, that's the, the theory, and I think there's a lot of evidence to that theory. I really do. Um, so that is an explanation, a biological explanation for why we see what's happening. People are getting to be less and less competitive. They're getting to be less and less masculine. Testosterone levels are falling. Uh, all of the um, qualities that used to be prized, like uh, ambition, aggression, channeled aggression, competitiveness, winning, these things are all anathema now. And it wouldn't be happening if the biology wasn't changing. So uh, there it is. All right, um, Bart Hennon says, uh, devil's advocate question. With the expected red rave being becoming barely a trickle, I have to ask, are we the ones in the bubble or the echo chamber? Now you're on, now you're on a really interesting topic here. Um, uh, I don't mean that we, are we wrong? No, not at all. Our conservative principles, our ideas and ideals remain intact, but are we in a bubble with regard to how we win elections? For weeks, I listened to Ben Shapiro and others say that people would not fall for the Democratic rhetoric and that the Dems were in for a disaster this election midterm. I said it too. Uh, and that the abortion issue would be minor compared to the economy issue and inflation. Well, just the opposite for nearly every or, or very nearly so of what actually came to be. Turns out people didn't care that much about the economy it was going to the toilet. They did care about the repeal of Roe v. Wade and on down the line. And this surprised no one except conservatives. So are we the ones in the bubble echo chamber? Now we get to, uh, now we get to, um, yes, Ryan, you're absolutely correct. Ryan's, uh, just, I'll get right back to you, Bart. Ryan said, does this, does this explain why uh, his, 
Hispanic migrants, meaning Latinos, I think, I think Latinos hate that word, Hispanic, uh, are going to skew Republicans as they realize what the parties stand for. Yeah, the, 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 the people that come to America, especially the ones that do the hard work of coming to America legally, are selecting themselves for risk. It's just that simple. So I want to get to this question because this is the this is the question. Um, this is the question. Uh, okay. So, are we in a bubble? Uh, apparently, we are. Apparently, we are. Um, we look at the um, we look at the rallies, uh, and we see. Um, this unbelievable, you know, two rallies in the same state at the same time. Donald Trump's in a stadium and he brings, you know, 45, 50,000 people. Joe Biden's in a high school gym with maybe 100 people there. And we look at that and we say, what else do you need to know, right? I mean, this is obvious. It's To me, it's just first-class evidence. It's evidence of your own eyes, visual evidence, right? But that's not how it panned out. And then, and then... You start getting to the to the core of the problem, and this is what I think the problem is. Every now and then, just randomly, uh, through making various sounds and noises, I will occasionally say something that I think is actually interesting and worth remembering. And when we were talking about this on the Daily Wire the other night, it suddenly hit me very clearly. I said. There are millions and millions, probably tens of millions of people who voted for Joe Biden because they love Bobby Kennedy so much. The second I had that thought and got out of my face, I said, that's, that's, there's something really there. Why do Democrats vote for a candidate with obvious brain damage? Because they love Bobby Kennedy. Why do they vote for a dead person? In Pennsylvania, because they love Bobby Kennedy, or Obama, or whatever, because the because the Democrats have a unified message. If I say to you woke politics, you don't have to like it, but you know what it is, right? You know what it is. If I say woke, you know what it is. It's a brand, and the Democrats have had a brand for the longest time, and part of that brand was the was the anti-brand attack as what you would expect, right? Pepsi attacks Coke, Coke's atta Coke goes after Pepsi. So part of the democratic brand is we're the, we're the idealists, we're the ones who want progress, we're the ones who want fairness, we're the ones who want equality, and the Republicans are the ones that are constantly getting in our way and trying to stop this, this move towards a, a better world. And that's the brand. And as a brand, it's extremely effective. Now, Reality is eating away at that brand very, very hard. The reality of what these people have evolved into, the Democrats and the, and the progressives, are they're, they're, they're cheapening their own brand and they're doing it real, real fast, right? Real fast. The Democrats were always the party of the small guy, the working guy. Well, now they're the party that says, you, you don't uh, you, you complain about the high gas prices, just buy an electric car. It's only 100 grand. You won't have to pay for gas. You will have to pay for more electricity, however. I saw, was it, um, I think it was, believe it or not, I think it was Bobby Kennedy, the one who's currently in Congress, saying, asking um, Pete Buttigieg, uh, so uh, uh, Mr. Transportation Secretary, 
does a does charging an electric car does that use more electricity than a than a refrigerator and he says yes does it use twice as much as a refrigerator he says more than that he says five times as much Buttigieg says it uses 20 times as much electricity as the running of the refrigerator so they're destroying their own brand because they are becoming the party of millionaires and the elite and the lunatics and working people are leaving the democratic party in droves they're not coming to the republican party because they love republicans they just can't stand being with those weirdos and, and psychos anymore now that is that is a real actual opportunity for us but now we get to the main point the main point the main point and that is okay so if i say woke you know what that means if i say Republican or conservative, what does that mean? What, what associations does that make for you? When I mentioned it on the show, Mike said, well, it's kind of different per candidate. I said, yes, it is. It is different per candidate. And that's why we're in trouble. Because when the Republicans have no brand other than Republican, when people say I'm a Republican, well, what does that mean? If you were, look, the whole idea of a conservative is somebody who thinks that things have gotten as good as they can get in a certain area, and now they're getting worse. So we are trying to conserve this. We're trying to stop this from getting worse. If you think things are getting gonna, are, are bad and getting better, you're liberal. If you think things are better and getting worse, then you become a conservative. So the essential action that a conservative takes is, is to say, um, uh, is to say no. Right? That's basically what conservatives do. No, this is not good. This is not, this is not good. And that's what people's opinions are about it. And so you have this, you, you don't even have a, a you don't even have a, a, a brand. You've just got the absence of a brand. And this is a real problem because there is a brand, you know, we all believe in the same things. It's just that they don't know how to tell it. Eric Blake's right on the money. He said, Ronald Reagan knew how to tell stories. Yes, so let's look at Ronald Reagan. If you look at the uh, election map for 1984, you will see that the entire country is red, except for Minnesota, which was Walter Mondale's state. And Mondale carried that by 5,000 votes. Reagan, I found this out just two days ago, Reagan did not, specifically did not vote, did not campaign in Minnesota because he, 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 he didn't want to take his home state away from, from um, Mondale. He knew that one was going to be big, right? But in 1980 and 1984 especially, that map is 100% red with the exception of Minnesota, which is 5,000 votes away from being red too. It's, you run the table, right? You run the table. That's data. What, what was it about Reagan that worked? What was it about Reagan that was that successful? Because no one has ever been that successful, ever. No one has ever been that successful in history, ever. There's not a, there's not a single electoral map that looks like 1984. So. What, what was it? What did he do? Well, 1984 was a blowout because of what he did starting in 1980. Same as DeSantis. DeSantis squeaked by in, 19, in uh, uh, what would that be, uh, 2018, and now he wins by 20 points. So both Reagan and DeSantis came in with a vision, and then they made promises, and then they squeaked over the line, and then they fulfilled those promises, and when they fulfilled their promises, all of a sudden people got to be absolutely enamored right because things were bad he says give me a chance i'll make it better he they give him a chance barely 
and he makes it much better. So when the next election comes around, it goes, the guy said he would do it, and he did it. My life is much better now. So what is it about Reagan that worked? Why? Why? DeSantis, same kind of thing. Why? So Reagan had a very simple vision, and this is the beauty of it. Reagan's vision was mourning in America. You don't, that's, it's essentially, that's exactly what make, make, let's make America great again, is mourning in America, right? It's like, we've been beaten down, and now it's time to pick ourselves back up and, and, and make things good again, make them better again, right? So, Reagan came in with mourning in America, and, and he took a country that had been completely demoralized by the Vietnam War, by the Iran hostage crisis, by the, by the, um, uh, the Arab oil embargo, where Americans who had been on the top of the world five, ten years earlier are now at the bottom of the world, and they don't like it. And Jimmy Carter was saying, get used to it, you know, wear a sweater indoors and, uh, and drive 55 miles an hour and get a small, ugly car, and he said, just, this is the new reality, get used to it. And Reagan said... I don't buy that. Uh, I don't buy the entire uh, preposition. I just don't. I think I think this country is capable of much, much better than that. And so he said, "That's what I'm running on." And people gave him a chance, and he delivered. But that's only half of the issue. He got the messaging right, and he got well. Maybe it's thirds. He got the messaging right. It was a good message, and it was a clear message, a simple message. Morning in America. It's not the end of America. This isn't, this isn't sunset for us. This isn't that our, us going off into the good night. No, it's always morning in America. We always have a chance to completely do things over again. So he's got a good message, simple, easy to understand. Everybody gets it. The second thing he did to get that 84 electoral board is he actually did make the changes. The military got rebuilt. The economy started humming. Taxes and regulations were rolled back. People started, and more than anything, people had hope again for the future. You don't invest in things if you don't have any hope for the future. You don't, you don't open a new factory if you're convinced that things are just going to continue to go darker and darker and darker. So Reagan came and he, and he made it easier for people to invest and, and build things. So they did. And so everything got better. So that's the second of the three parts. But the most important of the three parts in terms of what we're looking at today is Reagan was a happy warrior. There are many people who just despised Reagan's politics, but it's virtually impossible to despise Reagan, personally. Reagan was always smiling, and Reagan was always, he wasn't gentle so much as he was just buffered, you know? He didn't, he didn't come out and call uh, Jimmy Carter, uh, you know, a, a washed-up loser. When Jimmy Carter said, well, we're concerned about your age. Reagan said, um, I'm glad somebody brought up the age issue because, frankly, I've decided that no matter what happens, I'm going to run a clean campaign, and I am not going to, it was against Mondale, I guess, and I am not going to hold my opponent's youth and inexperience against him. Boom. That was the election, as if it was ever in any doubt, right? Mondale wants to make a deal. Reagan's too old. He's, he's, he's getting senile. Reagan doesn't say, screw you, Mondale, you, you know, Mondale the meek. He says, uh, he says, um, I, uh, I refuse to allow you know, myself to descend to the level where I'm going to use my opponent's uh, youth and inexperience against him. That's, that's just magnificent. That's just perfect. That is as perfect as DeSantis and Abbott sending illegal aliens to Vermont and 
to um, Martha's Vineyard, which is the most brilliant political thing I've seen since Reagan. But but Reagan Reagan was never. Yeah, Bartz points out that Mondale cracked up. Everybody cracked up. People who hated Reagan cracked up because it was funny, because he was a funny guy. And and he but but there was he there was something about Ronald Reagan that was kind of unique. But in any event, this is the secret sauce, right? Reagan was strong, but he wasn't mean. And Trump is strong. And here we are. Anybody can look. You 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 go into you go into battle with the army you got. And from the beginning, when 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 Trump became the nominee, my attitude was the same as uh, Lincoln's attitude, which is I can't spare this man. He fights when when somebody said Grant's got a drinking problem. Lincoln said he may have a drinking problem. He may have a a pervert problem. He may have a gambling problem. He may have all kinds of problems. Maybe a raving psychotic. But I can't spare him because he fights. He wins. And so that that was that but the question is certainly if donald trump if somebody had taken away his twitter not completely taken it away from him right not taken it away from him so that he doesn't communicate just getting it out of his hands right just out of his hands so that they could just sit on it for a little bit maybe just just soften it up a little bit he would have been president and we'd be on his second term and and everything that he achieved peace in the middle east no new wars energy exporting country lowest unemployment for for his, for for uh, Latinos for blacks what 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 Trump did as president is unbelievable it's unbelievable what he accomplished he accomplished more than Reagan did I really genuinely think he did right but the thing that got him there is the thing that also got him out of there he he is not his well like I said on the Daily Wire the thing the thing that people love about Trump is that no one can tell him what to do. And the thing that people hate about Trump is that no one can tell him what to do. And and that's tragic. It's a tragic problem because, because there's so much that he does that are unforced errors. And, and when you look at what he accomplishes, what he actually did, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable what, what Donald Trump accomplished as president of the United States, especially coming after eight years of Obama. What he did is unbelievable, not the least of which was stopping Hillary Clinton. But if he's not, if he's not president doing unbelievable things as president, if all of the positive things he was doing and did are now off the table because of 2020, and we all have our own opinion about that, then all you're left with at the moment are the disadvantages or the negatives. And that's a problem, right? That's a problem. Why he said, why he attacked DeSantis two or three days before the election is, I, I, I was just gobsmacked. I just couldn't get it. I just, I didn't understand it, although I kind of did, right? So, so look, uh, yeah. So with that said, right? With that said, DeSantis is strong and he's tough, but he's not reckless. He's not making unforced errors. When people in the press, great example, I saw, was, I watched it in real time, I just couldn't believe it. It was right after Ian struck and somebody from CNN said, um, 
Okay, Governor, I'd like to address Florida's slow response to the crisis. Do you think, and before he finished the sentence, he said, whoa, 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 whoa. See, this is why nobody trusts you. This is why nobody trusts you. We didn't have a slow response to the crisis. We had, a, we had an extremely capable and very, very fast response to the crisis. Storm changed position by a couple hundred miles in the last hour and a half before it came on board. But we, we built these bridges. He didn't let him get away with it. But he didn't also at the same time add a kick that wasn't necessary. Now, here's the problem. DeSantis is, in my opinion, well, I don't think it's breakthrough punditry for me to say he's the best governor I've ever seen in my life. And not only is he a great governor in terms of doing what governors are supposed to do, he's made Florida much more livable, he's expanding economy, he, he, got, he didn't lock down the COVID thing, he had, uh, he had the lowest death rate in the nation, he took all of these risks, he went for freedom, 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 freedom. He took away regulations, and when it turned out that people were indoctrinating our kids, with their philosophy, instead of teaching them math, that he said, okay, if you want to turn these schools into a, polit a political thing, then we'll play politics. No, there's the law. And Disney, if you're now going to be a, a mechanism for social change, then that sweet deal that you've had since 1973 or whatever, 1970, we're going to re-examine that. That's great governance. But on the campaign trail, he's not, he doesn't draw what Trump does. Because Trump is a showman, right? So here we are. So what do we do about this? Well, the biggest problem is, is that we are looking at candidates and we're not looking at the brand. I just have to say it again. Right now, well, as far as electorally is concerned, at least five major, major national politicians are mentally incapable. It's probably more than that. But, but, Barbara Feinstein is suffering from major dementia. Nancy Pelosi is the same. Fetterman has, has a stroke and he can't put sentences together. Biden is, it's not even, it was funny, then it was sad, then it was I don't know what it is anymore. It's just, it is, right? It's just a national ongoing toothache. And the fifth one is Kamala Harris. Nothing ever happened to her. She was just born stupid. But you've got, you've got five people with this real inability to function on an adult level in major political positions, and they're all Democrats. Why? Because the Democrats don't elect a politician. They don't elect a candidate. They elect the idea. That's why they vote for dead people. That's why they vote for Fetterman. Because it's not about Fetterman. It's about the message. It's about the brand. And we don't have a brand. And we need to get a brand because our brand is awesome. We just don't know what it is. We can't, it, we can't describe it. What we are is we are, we are the world's greatest soft drink in an unmarked bottle that's sitting on the back of the shelf. That's what we are. We got the best message. We got the best taste out there by a wide margin. And we don't even know enough about marketing to even get in the game. So. Republican Party and BillWiddle.com are pretty much one-on-one -on -one, uh, matchup here, right? The, the brand has to be something that is recognizable over all of the candidates. It has to be a vision. It has to be a vision. And the vision can't just be those people are idiots 
and we're not voting for him. It has to be something positive. That's what Reagan came with. He came with a positive message, and he came with a positive attitude, and he didn't give you anything to hate. Right? He didn't, he, he made it really hard for you to hate him. Trump is making it really hard for you to like him. And that's the difference, right? That's the difference. So what do we do about this? Well, as I said on the show, uh, when I was just chatting with Kelly, you know, Kelly and I are just constantly having a conversation about these guys. Uh, but when I was on the show, I said, essentially, essentially the answer is take Ron DeSantis, bronze him up, put a blonde wig on him, tie his tie a little long in the front and get him up on stage. That's the solution, right? Wrap the competence in the charisma and not the other way around. So, yeah, I saw it, Marusha, thanks. It's, it's nice. So, when you say, how do you lose to Fetterman? Well, you elect a candidate, you, you, you nominate a candidate who's not capable of beating a guy with brain damage because that candidate wasn't just a bad candidate, he was a bad candidate who didn't have a message. Ron DeSantis was a good candidate who didn't have a message. Bear with me. He had an example, but he didn't have a, he didn't have a message. He didn't have a vision. He just had results. So all of this together tells me that if I'm looking to make that Republican brand, then I go with what's working. DeSantis squeaks over the line four years ago, wins by 20 points. There's, that's in, in American electoral politics, it's unprecedented, right? So why did DeSantis have that much of a gain? And not only did DeSantis have a gain in Florida, why did he take the entire state with him? There is not a national, there is not a Democrat from Florida on the national level, not one, right? So it's not just DeSantis, it's the Republican ground game and it's everything else that, that, that he accomplished in then. It's the entire structure, it's a procedure. On, we were talking about this on Scott's segment uh, of Right Angles that we shot this morning. And Scott said, it was a great example. He was talking about when the, when the Japanese were cleaning our clocks with cars and making better cars and electronics. We'd just gotten lazy and, and stupid and just assumed, of course, people are going to buy GM. What else are they going to buy? Some Japanese junk? So the Japanese take the advice of this American guy who has a William... I just, there was an American visionary businessman who basically said quality is the only thing that you sell. Somebody will give me his last name in a minute. I should have known it. I've just forgotten it. And nobody in America listened to him, but the Japanese did. And so they changed their entire business culture and made, not make cars, made excellence. Demings, right, Demings. Okay? So this morning, Scott has the example. He says that one of the things that, that, the, that the Deming strategy was the Deming strategy of selling excellence was, instead of the manager sitting up in his office, before you had a chance to even apply for a manager, they would say, see, we painted a circle down there on the shop floor. See it? Yeah. Well, you need to go stand in that circle and just watch and listen, and we'll come and get you. And they said they made this guy stand there for eight hours. So what's this all about? Well, what they're saying is, we don't want you to come in here with opinions and theories that don't bear any relationship to the reality on the, sh on the floor. We want to know what the reality is, and then we want to build our plan around it. We don't want to come in with a plan and see if it happens to, to match reality. And there's a couple of cases of this kind of thing being very clear. I've been listening to this guy, um, 
ex-combat veteran. He's doing a lot of uh, briefs on, um, on the uh, Ukraine war. And um, he told a story. He's a former combat veteran. It's probably why he's named his channel as ex-combat veteran. But he was telling the story if he was in Iraq. And he said they took some fire, took some RPG fire, and uh, they wrote up the after-action report. He, they, what got him commenting on it was the presence of all of these GoPro body cam, the kind of thing, was that now the intelligence guys can see what the soldiers saw. Because he said what happened to him and has happened throughout the history of, of, of working with intelligence in our army and others. He said we would have an engagement. We would say the number of, of, of people that we were engaging approximately. We'd say that we took RPG fire, let's say. All right, write this up. Here's the grid coordinates. Here's the time and the date. Here's who was here. Here's who we, this is what we saw. Send it up to intelligence. So then he said, this is, the, this is the vet speaking. He said, then he'd read the intelligence report based on the report that the actual soldiers who fought in it sent down. And they found out that the, that the RPG fire had been changed to mortar fire. And he said, the reason they changed it to mortifier was their intelligence told them that the enemy doesn't have RPGs here. So those stupid grunts must have been taking mortar power, uh, fire and didn't realize it was mortifier because our report says there are no RPGs there. So it couldn't have been RPGs. Must have been mortars. And then this guy's saying, what do, you, what do we have to do? I mean, what? there's an equivalent to this in, um, in aviation in the golden age at Edwards Air Force Base when we were going further, faster, and higher every single day. We were flying so many different types of experimental airplanes and we were pushing them so far on the envelope, we were, we were really flying airplanes to the limit of their construction. And what would happen is there'd be a new airplane design and a pilot, test pilot would go up and test pilots don't just go up and just say, oh, let's see what she can do. No, it's, it's extraordinarily boring work. It's like, we're gonna take it to, we're gonna take it to 460 knots and we're going to do some 30-degree turns, stable here. Okay, let's take it up to 470 knots, and we'll do the same thing. It's extremely meticulous. So this pilot came back with a report that said that we're starting to pick up aileron flutter at anything above 520 knots. And he comes back down and says that to the engineers, and the engineers say that's impossible. We've done, we've done the calculations 30 times. You won't, you won't pick up any flutter on those ailerons until you get up near 600 knots. He says, well, I saw it at 520 knots. It's impossible. And then finally, one of these test pilots came in and s smashes his hand down on the table. And he says, damn it, the pilot is always right. And he's right about that because the pilot is the one who is dealing with reality. He's not dealing with theory. So DeSantis is dealing with reality. So if I had to craft a Republican message, here's what it would be. The brand for Republicans will be this. There are two competing theories of what makes people happy. One of them is to let government do everything, and one of them is to let government do only the bare bones minimum. In California, they want to do everything. That's the Democratic Party's brand, is have the government do everything. Okay, well, they're locked their kids out, closed down all these businesses, and they have a higher mortality rate than we do. On the other hand, we in Florida didn't lock down the schools, had the lowest mortality rate, have the lower taxes, we have lower regulation, our economy is booming, people are leaving there, coming to here. That's evidence. That's not theory. If people are going from one place to another, it's because this other place works better. That place works better is our stuff. This is, they're going from democratic cities to republican cities, 
or Democratic states or Republican states because we do a better job. Because the actual truth is everybody's happier when government does less. That's our brand. Our brand is we think you know how to run your life better than I do. Any questions? Right? Any questions? We believe that you know how to run your life better than a bureaucrat does. That's it. So, uh, a lot of people are saying the stream is glitching. Uh, must mean I'm saying something worthwhile. Um, hopefully the audio is okay. Uh, and we will upload it to YouTube and it will be, um, it'll be there. Sorry about that. It's not me. Everything looks groovy on this end. Uh, 345 viewers there and, and another uh, 78. We're starting to grow this little puppy, actually. Um, no, the, the YouTube stream is not over. It's still on. I'm still streaming. Um, uh, and apparently it's it's gone out. Hopefully it'll come back. There's nothing I can do about this, so I'm just going to keep going. Um, so, uh, we'll see. Uh, all right, here's... Uh, Chris Taylor, we're going to do it. Marisha, Cody Fett. I keep thinking I'm going to get to Facebook, but by golly, I just, I just run out of, run out of voice here. I'll try and get all of these done though. Um, okay, so, um, okay, Chris Taylor. I have to put on the uh, spectacles. Um, Bill. Several times you've expressed opinions that suggest if liberty-loving regions of the United States like Texas and Florida decided to leave the Union in the near future in order to go back to being limited government free market states, you would support their secession. I would. And likewise, if commie-infested status parts of the country like old California, Boston, D.C., sprawl, etc., wanted a national divorce from the anti-choice Hicks in Jesus land, you would not take up arms and murder them to keep the Union together. Correct. You also seem like the kind of person who takes your word very seriously and feels a strong obligation to keep any oath or pledge you make even at great personal cost. Yes. So my question is, and this is in bold, so here it comes. Have you stopped pledging yet that the United States is one nation under God indivisible? Have, have I stopped pledging that? No, I haven't. If not, can you honestly pledge that the United States of America is indivisible? I'll get to that. Not that such a thing is really possible to pledge for any polity in our fallen world. I'll get to that. By the way, you may be interested to notice that immigrants' oath of allegiance does not require pledging the nation to be individual, indivisible, and Dean um, Alfang's An American Creed seems far superior to both, pledging neither impossible indivisibility nor servitude to the government when it decides it is nationally important. I dare you to read it on air without crying. Here it comes. I do not choose to be a common man. It is my right to be uncommon. I seek to develop whatever talents God gave me, not security. I do not wish to be a kept citizen, humbled and dulled by having the state look after me. I want to take the calculated risk to dream and to build, to fail and succeed. I refuse to barter incentive for a dole. I prefer the challenges of life to, the guaranteed, to a guaranteed existence, the thrill of fulfillment to the state to the stale calm of utopia. I will not trade freedom for benefic beneficence, nor my dignity for a handout. I will never cower before any earthly master, nor bend to any threat. It is my heritage to stand erect, proud and unafraid, to think and act myself and enjoy the benefit of my creations and to face the world boldly and say this, this with God's help I have done, and this is what it means to be an American. 
Yep. And uh, that is um, that is uh, that is K. That's the that's the K. James King James Bible for for K philosophy. It's in a nutshell. Oh man, you YouTube is down to seventy four viewers now from three hundred and fifty. So it must have like died, died, died. Uh, I'll just have to post it. Um, anyway, um, so. When you ask, have I, why do I still say indivisible? The Pledge of Allegiance is always uh, been a little sketchy for me. I, I, some people have a have a uh, like a philosophical disagreement with it. I don't. I think it's important, you know. But th there's something just kind of there's just something a little a little. Um, a little sketchy about it. It, uh, I don't need to restart. I can't restart because I'm recording this thing and, and there's two or three hundred people watching. And when I post it, there'll be three or four thousand people watching. So I can't restart it. And, and I'm sorry, I'm not going to. It's nothing I can do about the streaming service. We're doing fine on this end. Everything here is green going out. So I don't know why they're doing what they're doing, but nevertheless, there you go. Anyway, um, so. You know, indivisible is a is a is a, a weird sort of term. Pledging to the flag is a little strange. You would really think it should be pledging to the Constitution. But the overall idea is there because it is a, a, a it's a ritual that that generates uh, indivisibility and unity when it's spoken in good faith by most everybody, especially when the teachers are behind it. When the teachers are doing nothing but criticizing it, then then they are not only dividing the nation, but they're using the Pledge of Allegiance to divide the nation. Hey, first time chat from uh, C. King's text, the parental rights in education bills only protects until fourth grade, and the stream is completely dying on our ends. Yeah, I'm sorry. I can't, I can't do anything about it. Um, I can't do anything about it. It's not on my end. It, it's just there's I got nothing but green lights here, so I'm sorry. Um, anyway, <clears throat> the reason I I the reason that I don't change the indivisible part is because all of us talk about separation and stuff is a is a uh, political physical, geographical, philosophical division. But um, America is an idea. America is an idea. So, uh, so as long as the idea is there, then, um, then I'm, I'm with the idea. I think, I think what they're basically saying is, um, that what I'm basically saying is is that we should be pledging to the idea. So <clears throat> I'm getting notes from everybody that the stream is essentially completely useless, including the audio. So I'm going to cut this one off here because everybody's getting frustrated, and uh, and I don't want that. Um, it, it will go up on YouTube uh, and should be 30 frames a second. Uh, Nothing changed on our end, so anyway, there it is. So um, 
Yeah, I saw that. It only lasts till fourth grade about the Florida law. Well, there's time to make some, some new laws, but it, it's a start anyway. So unfortunately, I'm going to have to plug this thing up right now because there's no point in going on. Nobody can hear me live, so I might as well just um, wrap it up here, and that's what I think I'll do. Uh, this show is made possible by the members at BillWhittle.com who um, keep the lights on and have been uh, really been doing it for 12 years now, something like that, uh, and, uh, and longer. And uh, to whom we are very, very grateful. Uh, so, um, sorry about the early close, but uh, it is what it is. We will see you Monday for Stratosphere Studio. And uh, we'll see you next Thursday right here at the Stratosphere Lounge.